The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. If you would join with me in prayer once again. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth that we can build our lives upon. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And even in the preaching and the reading of your word, Lord, there is the power of the Spirit at work in us. And so I do pray this morning that your word would be at work in your church. Help us to understand this text in such a way that it brings about change in our lives, that we might be even more devoted to you, that we might be citizens of the kingdom of heaven that are effective for the building of that kingdom, for your glory and honor. We give this time to you, Lord. We pray that you would help us to hear from you the things which you desire to speak to us this morning. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. It was... uh, In the fall of of 2005, Natalie and I had the opportunity to go to Vienna, Austria, along with baby Joel, little baby Joel, and one afternoon, we were walking through a park in Vienna. We were there visiting some friends of ours that were church planters, but as we're pushing baby Joel in a stroller through this park were approached by two nice-looking young men. And they come up to Natalie and I, and they begin speaking to us in in German, the language that they speak in, in Austria. We explained to them that we didn't speak much German, and they quickly realized we were Americans. They were thrilled. You see, they too were Americans. And there was this instant uh, draw to us and desire to speak English. They told us that while they were there in Vienna, they weren't allowed to speak German unless they found someone that was in English, or they were only allowed to speak German, excuse me, unless they found someone that was a native English speaker. And so we were speaking with them and, and hearing a little bit about them and and where they were from. And you could see this rejoicing that they had, fellow Americans here in this city park in Vienna, Austria. And then they began to speak to us about Jesus. And they began referring to Scripture. And so as they did this, Unexpected by them, I reached down into the baby stroller and I pulled out my Bible and I opened it. And as they were referring to Scripture, I would turn to those Scriptures and I would read those Scriptures to these two young men. They were trying to tell us certain things about Jesus and they were referencing Scripture, but the Scriptures they were referencing really had no support for the things that they were saying. They were wrong. These two young men, turns out, were Mormon missionaries. They were there in Austria serving in this mission for for their church. And this connection that we seem to have so quickly around being Americans, about being English-speaking, quickly dissolved. What started as almost a celebration, almost like a reunion, quickly dissipated, realizing that although we belong to the same nation on earth, we belonged to two different heavenly kingdoms. 
We couldn't unite around what was most important, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The things that they taught about Jesus were wrong. The references that they cited, they cited incorrectly. You see, they had built their their understanding of Jesus not on the inspired word of God, but on their own religious text, the Book of Mormon. Later that week, on Sunday morning, Natalie and I had the privilege of joining together with Calvary Chapel Vienna there in Austria. The service was in German, so we just picked up little bits of it. But it was such a cosmopolitan mix of people. Vienna, there are people from all places of the world that come to Vienna. There had to have have been ten different nations represented in this packed little building. But we worshipped with them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then as the meeting ended and everyone was ready to go home, long after the end of the meeting, there was this reluctance on everyone's part to leave. We were united around the gospel. We together were citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Different languages, different colors of skin, different cultures, different preferences and tastes, but one in Christ. As we come to our passage this morning, as we've read through this section in Mark chapter 15, we see this man, Joseph of Arimathea. We see this man who is an unexpected disciple, but this man who was devoted to Christ, this man who served him with great courage and great care, As we look at this text, we see Jesus is the central figure of this text, as He is of all of Scripture, understand. Jesus is the central figure, and it is Jesus in His life and in His death and here in His burial that there is a uniting or a dividing. And we're going to see some lines drawn in this text this morning, and I hope that it serves as an encouragement for all of us as we see the believers in Christ uniting around Christ. First of all, as we look at this text, let's look at the courage that Joseph displayed, the courage of Joseph. In Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 42... We read that evening had come, and since it was the day of preparation, Mark gives this explanatory note because his gospel was written primarily to to Greeks, so they wouldn't understand all of the Jewish customs. So he says, that is, it's the day before the Sabbath, the preparation day. Joseph of Arimathea a respected member of the council who was also looking himself for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This has been a long day. No, not not today, but this day that we're reading about here, this Friday, has been a long day. It started so early with the conviction of Jesus, the decision to hand him over by the Jews to the Romans, trial before Pilate, sentencing, beating, crucifixion. He was crucified at nine o'clock in the morning and at three o'clock in the afternoon, he died. And now the day continues to go on, and as evening has come, as the sun is nearing to set, 
Joseph now goes and asks for the body of Jesus. This is a a new character in the gospel. We haven't read about Joseph of Arimathea. We haven't learned anything about him up to this point. He, He seems to come out of nowhere quite suddenly, quite surprisingly, and he shows this great courage, and he shows this great care for Jesus. Now, Mark tells us some things about Joseph, some important things. First of all, in verse 43, he's a respected member of the council. A respected member of the council. That would be the council known as the Sanhedrin. Do you remember that? The Sanhedrin? That was the the group of Jews that were the religious elite. Seventy men selected out of the entire nation that would make decisions regarding the nation. These were the religious elite. It was the Sanhedrin council that condemned Jesus to death, decided to hand him over to the Romans. And here is Joseph, a member of the council, one of these religious elite, 70 out of the entire nation, and he is one of them, this small select group. They were prominent, they were wealthy, they were influential, and Joseph is one of them. Even more so, he's being called out as a respected member of the council. So just like we have the 12 disciples, and then there's this even inner group among the 12, the three that that go up the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, we have the three that are brought into the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, Peter, James, and John. So also, in the Sanhedrin, there are 70 men, but then Joseph is called out as a respected member, especially. So even of the 70, he stands out among them as a respected man, the elite of the elite. Now, what about the Sanhedrin council convicting Jesus and delivering him over to be crucified? We, we need to reconcile that because that doesn't make sense. How could he, as one who shows such great care for Jesus, be part of the group that actually sentenced him to death and handed him over to the Romans? Well, Luke chapter 23, Luke tells us about Joseph, verses 50 and 51, that he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. We don't know if Joseph was absent on that day, that morning when this decision was made. We don't know if he was overruled. Maybe he spoke up. Maybe Joseph was even present, but silent. Not consenting, but not standing up and opposing either. We're not sure. Up to this moment in time where he comes and he asks for the body of Jesus, he's been undercover. He's been a covert Christian a secret disciple. That's even what John writes about Joseph of Arimathea. In his gospel, he says that he was a disciple, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Joseph has this place in society. He has this place in religion but he's about to take some bold steps. He's been trying to go under the radar, trying to not be noticed as a disciple. 
But when you come down to it, when you come to the cross and the death and the burial of Jesus, this is where the dividing line is, and this is where the stand must be taken. And this is where Joseph finally stands up, stands tall, and represents no longer as a secret disciple, no longer fearing the Jews, but one who is bold in God. A respected member of the council, Mark also tells us that he was one who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. He was looking for the kingdom of God. I think it's interesting that Mark says also himself. There are, there are others in this text also looking for the kingdom of God. It wasn't only Joseph of Arimathea. It was Mary, Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Joseph. There were others who were also looking for the kingdom of God. And Joseph is one of them. He knew there is a kingdom, a kingdom that's, that's not of this earth. There's a kingdom that's worth waiting, that's worth watching for. The kingdom of God ruled and reigned by God, where peace and righteousness dwell. Do you remember back in Luke's gospel early on when Jesus is a baby and he's brought to the temple following those rituals, those laws, and there Simeon and Anna both rejoice over seeing this one. They recognize the baby Jesus as being the one who would usher in the kingdom of God the one who would accomplish the redemption of Israel. Joseph himself was looking for the kingdom of God. And anyone who is sincerely looking for the kingdom of God is going to arrive at Jesus. And they're going to take a stand with Jesus and for Jesus. Anyone who comes to the truth who arrives at a right understanding of the kingdom of God and who Jesus is, is going to stand with Jesus. Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God, and now as he is seeing all of this played out before him, he takes his stand with Jesus. He was a disciple. Mark tells us also that he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This is a bold move. Do you understand what Joseph just did? Do you understand who Joseph would have just become very unpopular with? The Romans, right? They were the ones that crucified Jesus. It would be their preference to leave the body on the cross and let it decay, let animals devour it, let it be a sign to all of those who might think about disobeying the rules of Rome. Look to those bodies hanging on the cross. But no, Joseph goes to the Roman authorities and he asks for the body of Jesus. They were the ones that just crucified him. This would set Joseph as, as a potential sympathizer. This is one who's sympathetic to Jesus and Jesus' causes. We need to keep an eye on Joseph. He's probably a dangerous man. He would have just broken off any good relationship that he would have had with the Romans. Asking for the body of Jesus. He wasn't a family member. No. He was a disciple and a friend. And Pilate would have known this. And also, he, along with setting himself against the Romans, he would have set himself against the Jews. A respected member of the council? The ones 
who decided that Jesus needs to be sent to the Romans to be crucified, and now Joseph is going to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus so he can give him a proper burial so that he can show care to him? Do you think Joseph, if he had done that, which he did, but then went back to the Sanhedrin council next time they gathered, do you think he would have received hearty handshakes and a warm welcome? Joseph, we're so glad that you took such great care of the body of Jesus. No way. What are you doing, Joseph? What are you doing showing kindness toward him? He's our enemy. How could you do something like that? They wouldn't want any kind association with Jesus, this Roman or this Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. And Joseph doing so would set him at distinct odds with them. And likely, his place of prominence in society would be ruined. This would be like social and economic suicide. All of my friends that I've had, all of the relationships that I have, all of this place in society that I have, all of the wealth that I have, I'm going to give it all up now to take a stand for Jesus and with Jesus. And that's what Joseph did. He took courage. This is what kingdom citizenship looks like, church, to take courage and to take a stand with Jesus and realize you're likely to have enemies on both sides. Joseph wasn't making friends with the Jews. He wasn't making friends with the Romans. No, he had enemies on both sides now. Initially, flying under the radar, a secret disciple. But at this point now, when the stakes seem to be the highest, Joseph steps up. Joseph stands out. Joseph identifies himself publicly as a follower of Jesus Christ. And a devoted one at that. Where are the disciples? They've scattered. Joseph rises to the occasion. No more undercover. No more peripheral or secret belief. Front and center and bold profession. And how do we know it? It's evidenced by his action. It's evidenced by what Joseph does. You understand this, don't you, church? This is, this is what Christianity is. Following Jesus, being identified with him, taking a stand for him in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. What is it that, that marks the beginning of the Christian life? We come to saving faith and we're baptized. Baptism. Baptism is that statement. Baptism is that public declaration. No, baptism isn't done in secret. You don't fill up the bathtub, shut off the lights, close the door, and go dunk yourself and say, I'm a Christian, but I'm just one secretly, and I don't want anybody to know. Now, you can be baptized in a bathtub, but the idea behind baptism is this is something public. This is something that we're doing. We're making a statement. We want people looking on. We want brothers and sisters in Christ looking on so they can mark this as a day where they are now holding us accountable in our life, in our walk with Christ. This is a day where the non-believers who see us baptized can recognize this is one who's taken a bold stand with Jesus. They're identifying with him in his life, in his death and in his burial, and in his resurrection. 
That's why we baptize the, the way that we do. It's laid out in Scripture for us. But it's a picture of Jesus, his life, his death and his burial as the individual is put under the water and resurrection as they're raised back up to walk, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptized with Christ into his death, into his resurrection. Baptism is a courageous step. I, I know that there are conversations happening now within the church with some of our, our young men about baptism. Baptism. We want to encourage them in that. We want to have conversations with them around that. And anybody else who has interest in baptism, we want to encourage you in this. We want to talk with you. We, we want to take that step with you. This bold and, and public declaration, this public profession that I stand with Christ and I identify with Him in His life, in His death, in His resurrection. Joseph was making this courageous step to identify himself with Jesus. We read that he took courage. He took courage. What does that mean? Well, it means to gather courage, to take it, to pick it up. I understand this as, as meaning that the courage is not something that is intrinsic to you, inside of you, and it's just a matter of mustering it up. No, this is something that comes from outside, to gather up courage, to pick up courage. This is courage that comes from the Lord. This is courage that comes from looking to Him, from depending on Him, from trusting in Him, from obeying Him. Psalm 27, David writes about taking courage. He begins Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David continues going on in this trust of the Lord. Though there are enemies all around, there is this trust and this seeking of the Lord. And in verse 13, he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. There is confidence. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And here it is. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Joseph taking courage to go to Pilate required a great deal of courage. I don't know if I can overemphasize that this morning, just how bold of a move this was, how costly this would have been to life as Joseph knew it. From that point on, everything would have changed. There was no going back. It took a great deal of courage and courage comes from pursuing the Lord. 
waiting on the Lord, waiting for the Lord. David again writes in Psalm 31, verse 24, Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Do you find yourself with knees knocking, a little trembling, a little unsure about things? What's happening to the world? What's happening to our nation? There's this rending, this tearing. Seems like everywhere we look, every, every news story is about some division, some trouble. If it's not one thing, it's another. And these could be times that, that church, we could find ourselves saying, boy, I, I'm afraid. I don't know. It's okay to not know. And it's okay to acknowledge that, Lord, these things have me shaken as well. But like David did, and I think like Joseph must have done, to turn to the Lord, to wait for the Lord, to get your confidence from the Lord in pursuing Him, in walking with Him, in obeying Him. That is the source of, of our courage, church. Taking up courage, gathering up courage, picking up courage. It comes from a pursuit of the Lord. It comes from a pursuit of the Lord. Courage. Courage is this daring. It's another way we could, we could explain it. Take courage means dare. This daring to act on God-given convictions, to stand up, to stand out. And listen to this. It is valuing the approval of God rather than the approval of men. I want to read this for you also. In John's Gospel, chapter 12, this is important for us to understand. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 42. John writes, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus, in Him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What a sad statement. Those that believed in Jesus yet were unwilling to be identified with Jesus. They kept this secret. They did not confess their belief in Jesus because they feared man. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory, the approval that comes from God. Courage requires us to have a right valuation, valuing the approval of God and not valuing the approval of man. Valuing God's approval. That's what courage is. One day I'm going to stand before the Lord. I will answer to Him. And it's His approval that I seek. Even if that means I'm unpopular with people now. The Jews and the Romans, Joseph was unpopular with them. but I'm taking a stand with Jesus. And I've been justified by Him. And I await that day where He says to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. John Wesley, speaking about courage, he said this, give me a hundred men who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I will shake the world. I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen, 
And such alone will overthrow the kingdom of Satan and build up the kingdom of God on earth. You see, those would be men. Those would be women who value the approval of God. Fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. Joseph of Arimathea was one such man. He takes this stand. Now, Pilate was surprised, verse 44. We next see this, the surprise of Pilate. He was surprised to hear that Jesus should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. Why was Pilate surprised? Well, even as I mentioned last week, crucifixion was not designed to speed up death. It was not engineered for efficiency of killing. No, it was engineered to prolong misery, to prolong suffering. Not uncommon for someone to be on a cross for days. The Romans would do just enough to keep them alive, offer them a drink, just enough hydration, just enough to give them a little hope, keep them alive so they can continue to suffer. This is the same day. Six hours later, Pilate learns that Jesus has died. And he summons the centurion. Do you remember the centurion who who last week saw how Jesus died? That in this way, he died? And he said, truly this man was the Son of God. The same centurion is called on to verify the death of Jesus. And he does. This centurion was an expert witness. This centurion knew his business, which was crucifixion. He knew the difference between life and death. He knew when someone had breathed their last, and he's called upon by Pilate and confirms, yes, Jesus has died. Verse 45, when Pilate learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. This is confirmation of the death of Jesus. Even the language that that Mark uses, referring to it as a corpse, it's a dead body. He grants the dead body of Jesus to Joseph. This is important to the gospel, the death of Jesus. It wasn't just Jesus' perfect and sinless life, his death. His burial. We can sometimes overlook that as we think about the gospel. The earliest creed of of the Christian church is the Apostles' Creed. And it reads this way, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, And in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. As Paul is writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's telling them the gospel. He's recounting, reciting the gospel. And he says in chapter 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is important. Jesus didn't fake death on the cross. As we look next week, as Seth teaches us next week in chapter 16, it's not resuscitation that happened. It's resurrection, and there's a difference. Pilate was surprised. 
Even as the soldiers were dispatched to go out and to make sure that these men hanging on the cross were dead that day, the Jews didn't want them hanging overnight. And so soldiers were sent to break the legs of those on the crosses, speeding up their death. They came to the one man, broke his legs, came to the other who had been crucified with Jesus, broke his legs. And when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers, John writes for us, pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. Jesus, in his death, was fulfilling scripture, and he died. And his life was offered and not taken. And I want you to understand that this morning, church. Pilate was surprised. He's dead already? How can that be? Because his life was not taken, his life was offered. He willingly gave himself as a sacrifice for sins. Jesus wasn't there with the goal and intention of staying alive as long as he could. No, he was there to accomplish the mission that his father sent him on, to give his life for our sins, for our redemption, as a ransom as atonement. Jesus even says in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Paul says in Philippians 2 that Jesus was found in human form and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. He gave himself willingly for you, for me. I want to let that just settle for a moment. As Jesus hung on the cross... It was a willing sacrifice. He knew the purpose that he came for. There wasn't the will to live. There was the will to die. Knowing that was the only way that you could be redeemed that I could be redeemed, that we could be forgiven of our sins, that we could gain entrance into the family of God, that we could have a place in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus gave himself willingly for us. Well, Joseph, receiving permission from Pilate, we read in verse 46, showed great care to Jesus. He bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. This is great care that Joseph is showing toward Jesus. He takes the body from the cross. We're not given details of what that looked like or what that involved, but Jesus was nailed there to the cross. And to remove the body of Jesus from the cross, and he purchases a garment specifically for burial. 
And he lays him, Matthew tells us, he lays him in his own tomb. He seals it up against grave robbers, against animals. Great care for the body of Jesus. John, in his gospel, he tells us that there was another man helping, Nicodemus. If you remember back to John chapter 3, Nicodemus, who came secretly at night and had these questions for Jesus, he also became a disciple, a believer. Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to prepare the body for burial. Now understand, we know how the story continues. Jesus is going to rise from the dead. He's going to be victor, champion. Joseph didn't know that. Nicodemus didn't know that. They didn't understand that the tomb was only going to be borrowed for a few days. At this point, when the stakes are highest, when it seems like this is at an end, this man who has come and lived and now died, they take their stand with Jesus. This makes the devotion that they showed at this time even more astounding, even more amazing, devoting themselves to Jesus at a time that I would think it could not be any more unpopular. And Mary Magdalene, verse 47, and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. These faithful women, all along these faithful women, as we saw last week, these faithful women who ministered to Jesus and helped him in his ministry, these faithful women who ministered to him in his life and now were so watchful in his death. They're observing. They see Jesus die on the cross. And as Joseph goes and takes the body and brings him to the tomb, the women are following along and they're watching. They're observing. They're paying attention, observing carefully where he was laid so what? They could come back. They could come back after Sabbath and they could minister to him in his death. They could serve him in his death. The witness of these women should give us even more confidence in the, in the truthfulness of the gospel and in these accounts that we read. For things to be substantiated, right, on the evidence of, of two or, or three witnesses, and here we have women serving as witnesses. But that's part of the amazing thing. It reinforces the fact that the, the resurrection story wasn't manufactured. It wasn't made up. Women were the witnesses. For first century cultures, for New Testament times, the testimony of, of women, that wouldn't hold up. That wouldn't bear the same weight or have the same power as the testimony of men. If this story was made up, it would be men who witnessed this. Men who were watching all of this. If you were going to make up this story, wouldn't you make it up so it's as convincing, as believable as possible? But it's not a made-up story. The gospel is not a made-up account. It's the truth about Jesus in his life, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. It's recorded accurately. It's recorded truthfully. And here, God shows great honor to these women, giving them such a prominent place, having theirs be the witness and the testimony of Jesus in his burial, and as we'll see next week in his resurrection. The gospel is true, church. And the gospel unites but the gospel also divides. As Joseph took a stand with Jesus, there was a division there. 
a division with the Sanhedrin council, a division with the Romans. The gospel divides, but Joseph also found himself part of a new family. As a disciple of Christ, it united him with the disciples. It united him with Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, with Nicodemus, and with you and I, that we together are united in Christ. There are many that have united in opposition to the gospel. The Jews and the Romans weren't friends, but they could find unity around destroying Jesus, and so they tried. But the gospel separates out those who are called, like Joseph, like Nicodemus, the women, the disciples, and it unites them together in a unity that is indivisible. The body of Christ, purchased by blood, called with an indisputable call, working in a kingdom that cannot be conquered or shaken. Even as Paul writes to Titus, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have. This is our blessed hope. Knowing that we have been purchased by blood, redeemed by Christ, joined with him in his death, and in his resurrection and walking in newness of life, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and awaiting that day when that kingdom is fully realized, fully revealed. Father, I pray that in this time, in this season, that you would strengthen our confidence in you, that we would take courage as we pursue you, to do what is right in your eyes, to not look for approval from men, but to look for the approval from our God. You are righteous. You are just in all of your judgments. And we delight in obeying you. We find joy in serving you. Father, give us strength that we might continue to do just that, to the praise of your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.